All right, we're working our way through our one-two punch on various things. And today I want to talk about, first, the resurrection um, as a topic that may come up in uh, faith conversations, as you're talking with unbelievers particularly, but also now as you're talking um, to people in various other non-Christian religious groups that might believe some of the Bible's teachings or claim some of the Bible's teachings, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a bridge too far for them. And so they say, well, come on, how, how could you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? History has proven that that's just nonsense. Because again, they watch the History Channel, and so they know things. Uh, so, one-two punch, remember, we start with our negative argument. And we start with our ultimate argument. And on this one, it's going to be no different than any other time. Because the negative punch of the ultimate argument is that they have no basis for knowledge and rationality. And so at some, unless you're starting with the resurrection, because it's what they brought up, you've probably already made this point by now, and it's not one that you have to revisit in detail, but their worldview cannot explain knowledge. It cannot explain rationality. It cannot account for the laws of logic and all these things. So when they declare with certainty the resurrection did not happen, your question is, how do you know? Because your underlying question is going to be, how do you know anything? What what does knowledge mean for you? What does it mean to know something? So they don't believe that the resurrection is possible. People don't rise from the dead. Miracles don't happen. The supernatural isn't real. How do they know that? And back leaning on our ultimate argument, they don't have a way for knowing anything. And so they have no basis to object to the resurrection. If all they can do is accept things that they've seen with their own eyes, you've already proven they don't live consistently with that. But if that were all they can do, that doesn't allow them to rule out anything unless they're claiming to have the sum total knowledge of the universe within them, that they have actually seen everything that is, which that's pretty easy to disprove, right? Um, Ask them if they've ever been to Bucky's. And if they've never been to Bucky's, <laughs> then you know something that exists that they don't. Uh, if they don't have the sum total of the universe's knowledge within them, then they can't disprove anything. They can only testify to what they've seen. So again, this is the, however it comes up, it, it, there, this is, doesn't have to be some deep, complex, philosophical argument. They're going to make a claim with certainty. And the negative approach, ultimate argument is to say, I don't understand how you're certain of anything. Tell me how you get to this certainty. Not just about that, but about anything that you believe. So then uh, you're going to get the proximate argument, which is the argument from the evidence around them. And this is the type of argument you'll have to apply when people start making more specific claims, like people don't rise from the dead. So again, how can you be certain of anything in your worldview is kind of an ultimate argument. Their argument, they'll try to make an appeal to science, right? Well, look, we've studied human life and we understand, well, well, now wait a minute. Uh, How does your view account for science? Let's talk about science. Let's talk, right. Um, 
But what, what, what it will really come down to most of the time, in my experience, is the idea that miracles can't be believed. It'll be an opposition argument to miracles. There's no such thing as a miracle. And uh, the philosopher David Hume made this argument. He, he boiled it down pretty simply. He said, it's never reasonable to believe in a miracle. Um, natural laws we believe in because they've been attested to by repeated observation over time. They are well established. And so it's more reasonable to believe in repeated observation than in miracles. Because what's the only way we know about miracles? Eyewitness testimony. And it's more reasonable to believe repeated observation than it is to believe eyewitness testimony. And so you got to think through, okay, how do I want to phrase, what are the words that I would use to object to that kind of argument? One problem with that argument is that it assumes from the outset that there's never been a miracle. (laughs) It assumes from the very beginning that we haven't had repeated observations of miracles and that these are somehow in two different categories of things that have been observed and things that are just made up by people. Well, that's a little bit question begging, isn't it? Why couldn't you just say, well, all the things you think have been observed, those people made those up too? I mean, it's a very circular argument. Um, It also assumes that the only evidence for a miracle is an eyewitness, that there's no lingering effect of a miracle, that there's no after-the-fact consequences or ripple effects that could be seen by other people, or that there's nothing else that could testify to the existence of a miracle, like God himself saying that there are miracles. Uh, so so that, that's a little bit of a problem. Um, it also assumes that natural laws are unbreakable, which is an assumption that needs to be challenged. Um, when you ask naturalists about scientific laws in a different context, what will they tell you about laws? That they're really just theories. That they recognize there's a possibility that something could be different But this is what we've observed time and time and time and time again, and we've observed it enough to say that we're confident this is most generally the way things are. Right? That's what they say. That's why I call them scientific theories. And they say, well, it's and then they say, well, theories become so certain that we call it a law because we just haven't observed anything else, and that's the way that it is. Now take them to a different context. Is it even possible, one in a billion, that a natural law gets broken? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's possible. Is it possible that it gets broken because of supernatural intervention? No. Why not? Because we've never observed it. Wait, wait, what? We're back to the circular reasoning problem here. Um, And in fact, that line of reasoning that um, we can only believe that which we have seen and observed repeatedly really wipes out all of history because not many of us are living who've observed those events. So we're, we're relying on eyewitness testimony. And as we talked about last week with the reliability of scripture, we don't just believe eyewitness testimony because people say it. We look for certain markers of truth. 
And when you look at the New Testament, the age of the manuscripts, the volume of the manuscripts, the agreement of the manuscripts, the lack of unified opposition at the time to the manuscripts. You don't have lots of other people writing books saying this Christian stuff is nonsense. They made it all up. Don't believe any of this. You actually don't have that, which is pretty surprising, as bold as the claims of Christianity are. Um, So it's not, we believe, all eyewitness testimony. But there is a, no, no, once you put eyewitness testimony through some sort of criteria of believability, we do believe it. And that's what you do with history. That's why you believe all these things, that there are no living eyewitnesses to see. So the argument proves a little too much. The argument proves that it would actually never be rational to believe in historical arguments, because it's always more rational to believe in repeated observation by your own eyes. Um, so that's, that's the type of proximate argument that will come up. What, what would someone say? I mean, it's true. We might as well throw out all history in school, right? I mean, it's yeah. what it's based on, eyewitness. You know? Yeah, and... and one, so how do they come back with... Because that, it's a great point, because um, you're getting to their real argument. Their real argument is not, it's irrational to believe Christian history or Christian doctrine. What they want to do is make it its own category. So when we're talking about the manuscripts, we can apply one criteria to manuscripts that are not the Bible. But for the Bible, we have to apply this other criteria that's not even a spoken criteria. It's a conclusion. It is not true. And the same thing with history. It's not about, thank you, the history cannot be believed. It's about, you should not believe this history. It's the agenda of, I don't want you to apply a standard to this and see if it's reasonable. I want you to dismiss it out of hand. I want you to say from the beginning, this cannot be true. Why can't it be true? Because they're supernatural. Why can't the supernatural be true? Because it's supernatural. Okay, well, at at some point, do we get to the the why? The why that can't happen? Because every standard you would use to believe the things you believe tells me I should believe Christianity. But you're saying Christianity can't be believed, so I'm trying to get to the standard. What's the standard you want me to use to exclude Christianity? And that's why in these conversations, you're not so rigid in your form, moving up and down the line of arguments. You're looking for those opportunities to get at that, which is the real question, that it's a heart issue, not a head issue. And so if there are legitimate head issues in the way, and for a lot of people, there will be some, but those are the detritus. That's the junk that's just kind of piled up around their heart issue, where they've been told that the manuscripts of the New Testament are not believable. They've been told it was a power grab in the third century. They've been told it. And so you may have to, uh, and that's why it should be gracious and with humility, help them set aside some of those arguments that are nonsense. But when you get to the heart of the matter, it's going to be the heart. It's going to be, I don't want to. I don't want to believe this. Not, it can't be believed or it's illogical to believe. So think about the history. The argument is the history cannot be believed. Let me read you. This is a religion professor from the University of Texas at Austin. He said, I would certainly agree, he's talking about the New Testament, that these early manuscripts provide us with a fairly good idea of what the original form of the New Testament writings might have looked like. That's what we talked about last week. He says, yet even if these second century copies are accurate, all then we have are first century writings that claimed Jesus was raised from the dead. This in no way proves that Jesus was raised from the dead. Looking horns. <laughs> but you, 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 you see the problem with that argument? So then if you ask the question, 
what would it take to prove that Jesus was raised from the dead? The eyewitness testimonies, which you say, that's what they say, and we should believe that they were very early. You grant all of the quality of the evidence arguments, and yet you say that proves nothing. Okay, what would prove Jesus raised from the dead? And that's when you're going to get back to the silliness of you, you can't prove it because it didn't happen. Uh, okay, that just sounds to me like I don't want to. Right? Because that's what it... And then you, right, so they'll say, I saw it with my own eyes. And you say, okay, are you telling me, I just want to be clear, the only things you believe in life are the things you've seen with your own eyes. Have you ever been to Bucky's? Right? You go back to the, there's lots of things they haven't seen. Um, Use evolution against them on that one. That's what I was Have you thinking. ever seen yeah. not life, not life become life? Yeah, you go further back than I would. Yeah. I, I would go to the speciation. Yeah, you ever seen a fish become a bird? You know, it's more rational to believe than not believe. We've never observed not. We just haven't had enough time. Yeah, when you're thirty years old, then the only thing that's ever happened is in thirty years because I only witnessed anything before that. And honestly, a lot of people are starting to live that way, which is more consistent with their worldview. But nothing that came before them was real. <laughs> Uh, the same professor talks about 1 Corinthians 15. This passage helps to demonstrate that the belief that Jesus was raised from the dead originated extremely early in the history of Christianity. Indeed, many New Testament scholars would not dispute that some of Jesus' followers believed they had seen him alive only weeks or months after his death. This in no way proves the historicity of the resurrection. So again, it's back to what would it take? What do you believe? What is your standard for knowing something? And they're going to have to come back to seeing it with my own eyes, which is really easy to disprove. And that's what the negative argument is. Look, you're, you're, you're right within your view, but are you seeing how your view doesn't actually account for anything? And that's why you don't even live consistently with your own view. It's not a problem with you. It's a problem with the view that nobody could live consistently with this or you couldn't believe anything that happened yesterday that you didn't see, much less before you. Would they say anything about why isn't there anyone else who said they saw him? Why is it only the believers that saw him? Like, what, Where are the documents that show that? Um, so, yeah, again, yes. Um, it's a very clever person, that, or a person who thinks they're clever, who asked that question. Um, First of all, the New Testament accounts to crowds seeing him, including non-believers seeing him. Um, you'd have to go back to what I said about where is the documentary evidence to the negative? Where is the groundswell of support? Groups of people have come up with insane, crazy views, making stuff up all throughout history. And do you know what people's contemporaries at the time do? They quash them. This is why none of us is fluent in the, the theology of the Branch Davidian cult, right? This is why all, all these things that didn't really happen, all the people who say the world is going to end on XYZ, you know why there's not 70 million people following that view now? Because all the people who are alive with them at the same time looked over and said, no, it didn't. You said the world was going to end last Thursday, and it didn't. You're a quack. Move on. 
So you don't have this in the early history of Christianity, and these were bold and dramatic claims. You do have non-Christian authors and historians attesting to the events of the time. These people existed, they were there, the, the, the historicity of it. You don't have the supernatural claims, that's not what they're writing about. Uh, and many of them chose not to believe them. Remember, that's... Uh, but you don't have the claims... It, on mass that people are making this stuff up. And we'll get to more of that in a minute. And I mean, a simple logical thought, it's really not that difficult when you think about it, say, why do we only have believers writing about Jesus? Because people who see dead people come back to life tend to be believers. <laughs> they were all made believers, the ones that he showed up to. <laughs> Bart Ehrman, my favorite professor at the University of North Carolina. What is certain is that the earliest followers of Jesus believed that Jesus had come back to life in the body and that this was a body that had real bodily characteristics. It could be seen and touched and it had a voice that could be heard. So let me pause there for a minute. This is the most anti-Christian scholar publicly in all of academia in the United States. There is nobody who has dedicated more of his life to telling people they should not believe Christianity than Bart Ehrman. And he is conceding that the New Testament is accurate in terms of the people who wrote it and who are described in it actually saw and and thought what is written that they saw and thought. That is all accurate. So we're not, even he is not arguing the reliability of the manuscripts, which is what most people think is being argued. Real scholars don't argue much of that. Um, they will about a specific passage. They're not going to argue it about the, the whole narrative of the gospel through the New Testament. It's just absurd, again, back to last week's argument about manuscripts. Um, so he says, no, no, no. When you read your English Bible, you are reading what, uh, what Mark and Matthew and Luke and John thought they saw. You're reading what they believed. Then he says... This does not, however, in any way prove that Jesus was resurrected. It is not unusual for people to see loved ones who have died. In a study of nearly 20,000 people, 13% reported seeing the dead. There are a range of explanations for this phenomenon, running the gamut from physical and emotional exhaustion, all the way to the belief that some aspect of human personality are capable of surviving bodily death. Okay, first of all, to, to his second point, he's not allowed to say that because he rejects the immaterial. So just dismiss that out of hand. Is the, but you hear what he's saying? He's saying, yeah, yeah, uh, people have uh, visions of dead people all the time. Is that what the New Testament claims? That, that uh, a group of random people had visions of their own random family members who had recently died while they were deep in... Tr- no. That it is a totally spurious argument. Um, so he is acknowledging that they are writing what they believe to be true. He's just saying they were hallucinating, deceit, right? You, 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 have, you can't even say deceived because that implies an immaterial. If, if the body's only material, it can't be deceived. It can only be chemically hallucinating or biologically deficient in some way. Um, so you just gotta, you gotta unearth with people what is their objection to the res- objection to the resurrection. How are they so certain that it's not true? And you're gonna have to show that any argument they make crumples under its own weight. It, it can't. Their worldview can't account for just a blanket 
statement. There are no miracles. And then when they try to get into these historical arguments, the history doesn't hold up. They're wrong. They just don't know their history. They're factually wrong in addition to inconsistent. So we can help uh, with that. And then the, the existential argument, really in this case, is just woven throughout it. Which is that idea of you don't live consistently with what you say you believe. You're not actually practicing this. So when you're making the, you don't live as if history started yesterday. You don't live as if the only things that can be believed are the things that you've seen repeatedly with your own eyes. How many, do you believe that you're married? How many times did you see your wedding vows? I mean, is that repeated enough? Like, I know it's a ridiculous argument, but you, like, their standards are ridiculous standards. So at some point you draw them to the, to the ridiculous. So you've made the point that their worldview cannot account for dismissing the resurrection. And now you're going to make the same types of arguments showing how the Christian worldview does account for it. So ultimate argument is the same as before, which is the very things that their worldview cannot account for, the Christian worldview can account for. Doesn't mean they have to believe it. Doesn't mean they have to like it. You're, you're not getting them to, to agree with you at this point. Yes, that is the only truth. You're simply showing what your worldview could not account for my worldview can account for. Therefore, I'm able to make these other arguments. Your proximate and existential arguments have no underlying foundation. They have no ultimate authority on which you could ground or base them. I'm going to start with my ultimate authority, which is that there is a supreme personal God who created and revealed himself to his creatures and therefore I can explain the intelligibility of nature, the predictability of nature, the laws of logic, morality. I get to use all of those things in my proximate and existential arguments which every time you made one of those I said I don't understand how you can make that argument. That's the point of the ultimate argument in our worldview and it goes back to the transcendental argument which we talked about before. Then, once you've made that ultimate argument, now we're back in the field of proximate arguments for the resurrection, uh, which you just kind of figure out what's the part of the resurrection that they're objecting to. You'll hear people object to the death. Well, he wasn't actually dead. Now, none of this is going to prove the resurrection. We just want to deal with each of these facts and potential objections to undercut their certainty. They've been told certain things. They accept those things as true because they want to accept them as true, not because they're the only or even the most rational explanation. So the fact that Jesus wasn't actually dead is not the only possible, and it's not the most rational. And the reason it's not the most rational is, one, you got a lot of eyewitnesses of Jesus' crucifixion, including unbelievers and non-Christian historians that are very confident that he died. It's not the most rational explanation because of who was putting him to death, which was the Romans. And if there was anything the Romans knew well, it was how to kill people. And if there's anything the centurions knew well, it was how to put people to death. There, you, you'd have to, um, you're asking someone to really strain rationality when they say these Roman soldiers were so incompetent that at what everyone agreed was the most important 
crucifixion they'd done in a long time. Remember that king of the Jews placard they hung over him? Everybody knew this was a pretty big deal. And that one, they got it wrong and didn't actually kill him. It's insane. Roman soldiers faced the death penalty themselves for not carrying out their duties. They had no desire to let Jesus live. So again, none of this proves anything. But it gives a lot of, of, of evidence to say, I'm sorry, what are the good reasons? What is the eyewitness testimony? What is the irrefutable logic that would make me doubt that Jesus was dead? The, the burden of proof is on the one who says Jesus didn't die because all of the reasonable evidence suggests that he was dead. Another point will be the empty tomb, right? Well, the whole empty tomb thing, you know, that, that, was, that was just made up. Okay, let's talk about some reasons to believe the empty tomb. Where Jesus was buried was public knowledge. It's recorded in the Bible, right? We, we 2,000 years later, know where Jesus was buried. They certainly knew where Jesus was buried. Paul testifies to an empty tomb. So if we're not going to believe what he says about that, we're throwing out all of the other things, go back to the manuscript evidence. We need a good reason to throw out all of the other things since this testimony satisfies all of the normal criteria for reliable testimony. Another peculiar thing is that um, in, the, in the patriarchal society of the first century, the eyewitness testimony of a man was prioritized over the eyewitness testimony of a woman. And yet... Whose eyewitness testimony does the New Testament emphasize with regards to the empty tomb? The women. So if the report of the empty tomb were not real, but were some conspiracy by somebody along the way to to sow the seeds of this fake narrative, they were not very good at sowing the seeds of a fake narrative because they picked the less reliable witnesses in their current situation to report to it. It, it. it doesn't make any sense why that would have been the case. The only way that it makes sense that they would have reported women as being the observers of the empty tomb is if, wait for it, women were the observers of the empty tomb and they're reporting historical fact. Even the early Jewish propaganda, first, second century, reports an empty tomb. You do not have eyewitness testimony saying they got the tomb wrong, right? So you get all these theories that people have to come up with. And again, go back to ultimate, where are these theories coming from? Why are we coming up with complicated, uh, ahistorical, that is, there's no actual evidence for them, we're just speculating. Why are we coming up with all this, these theories to disprove something that we have so much good evidence says happened? We don't put anything else with that much historical evidence to this level of scrutiny, where we just start making stuff up. Oh, wait, yeah, we do. That's where evolution came from. Because we can't, we don't like the only way to explain something. So we make up a way to explain something for which we have no evidence. And the only place that happens is with regards to disproving the Christian Bible. There's nowhere else in the world where you see this happen over and over again. Uh, So they come up with the conspiracy theory, right? The whole thing was made up. Well, I told you why that was ridiculous. They're really bad at a conspiracy, if if that's what they were going for. 
they come up with the swoon theory. Jesus wasn't actually dead. He was just mostly dead. And yeah, we've talked about why that was ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Another one is the wrong tomb theory. Well, the tomb was empty because they went to the wrong tomb. Again, I'm like, come on. What, what is this? The three stooges that are looking for Jesus here? Don't you think once the women came forward and complained that the, whoa, the body's gone, don't you think some other people went back to the same tomb to say, were you at the right tomb? Uh, this is not our, our uh, this is not, not yeah. What, it, was it common practice, though, that when somebody was crucified that they took them to a tomb? If they had enough money. So that's why Joseph of Arimathea donates his tomb, so to speak, to Jesus, because it really was a wealthy privilege. Uh, so it was, a, it was a well-known practice. Right. It was not a practice that everybody got to experience. It was a practice Jesus got to experience because of the benevolence of someone else. Okay. Um, Alright, so then, if it's not the empty, it's not the death, and it's not the empty tomb, the next thing that has to be argued against is the resurrection appearances. So first, just the facts of the appearances. Well, that goes back to Paul reports it in 1 Corinthians. The, the Gospels report it. Um, Paul reports it in 1 Corinthians 15. And I read you the Bart Ehrman quote where even he, this anti-Christian scholar, grants, no, no, they really thought they saw him. And they didn't think they saw an apparition. They thought they saw a physical body that was physical in the ways all of our bodies are physical. So now we've got to explain how these people were wrong. Well, they were hallucinating. That was Ehrman's theory. So you're positing that these eyewitnesses were all mentally insane, at least temporarily insane. The idea that so many people in one place would experience mass temporary insanity to a shared hallucination. This is, this passes the smell test. We have no historical evidence for this other than I don't want to believe there actually was a resurrection. But I'm willing to say that a group of people had a mass hallucination. Um, and, of fish and by the way, yeah, but so the fish concert is a good, a good example because if you were having mass hallucinations at the same time, how reliable would people's testimony be? Right? If you ask those people to write down their story later, you're not going to get a lot of similar stories because you're dealing with a bunch of crazy people. Right? So it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, the other one is a ruse, right? The idea that the whole thing was a purposeful, intentional hoax, a ruse. Um, that ruse would have had to involve the Romans being willing to fake the resurrection because they were the ones who crucified him. It would have to involve the Jewish enemies of Christ who wanted him dead in the first place. They're the ones that were concerned about a theft of the body and demanded that the Roman officials be there to guard the the grave and to secure it. Um, and despite the, the, the paranoia, Put on your Bible hat for a minute, not because you can necessarily go here with somebody in a faith conversation, but because it will help you unpack how to approach this. Go back to your Bible knowledge. Um, How confident were the, start with even the disciples. There's 11 now because one of them sold him for some silver. 
And then think about the more broad group of disciples and then the, the crowds. How confident were each of those groups that Jesus was going to rise bodily from the dead? Yeah, so you really have to put on a modern set of glasses to look backwards and say, yeah, they, they put all of this together and made, right? Because their faith was very, very weak. And you can say they hoped Jesus was the Messiah, that they, they believed and hoped. But a lot of them walked away from his crucifixion thinking, oh, well, got that one wrong. <laughs> Right. Uh, During the crucifixion, they weren't at the cross. They were hiding in the back. They had all retreated. Right. So they really lost faith. They did not think that this was going according to plan. And so it's not as if that's their great moment to pivot into brilliant strategists and create this narrative of what will become a worldwide religion for 2,000 years. Um the resurrection was the basis for the early church. Back to the point Jake made a little while ago. Why did so many people come to believe? Because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection. The news of the resurrection spread like wildfire. When somebody says, I'm the son of God, you will tear me down, and in three days God will build me back up, and they see it with their own eyes, people tend to believe, oh, yeah, okay, that sounds real. <laughs> and so it spread like wildfire. Even the people who didn't see it with their own eyes, but heard it from eyewitnesses, spread like wildfire. And then it gets captured in the scriptures. And Peter says that in these scriptures, we have a more reliable testimony because of what these scriptures have been through and because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as to their reliability. I'm not standing face to face, hearing a story from one person and deciding whether or not to believe it. I have the testimony of God in the scriptures telling me that this is what's to believe. So this was the basis of the early church. And it's nuts that they would have built a church on something they knew they were making up. It's not as though the first couple centuries of the Christian church, the church was celebrated and loved by all around, right? Believing in the resurrection did not make one super popular. What did it make them? Super persecuted and often dead. Right? What happened to the apostles? Dead. If I had 11 eyewitnesses to something, and they all had the same story, and I lined them up against a wall, and they made it up, and they all know they made it up, and I put a bullet in one of them, how far down the line do you I have to get before one of them says, all right, all right you're right, you're right? Made the whole thing. Doesn't doesn't happen. Now again, that proves nothing. But it creates a certain case for the other side to have to go on the defensive and recognize, wait a minute, I'm the one that bears the burden of evidence. I am the one that's saying, hey, take all of that reasonable stuff and throw it away in favor of this theory that has no proof whatsoever which you're allowed to do. You're always allowed to do that. But what you're trying to get the person to see is that's what you're doing. You're not standing on the basis of some huge historical evidence or logical argument. You're actually setting aside all of that stuff and coming up with another conclusion. And I just want to understand why. I just want to get at why. Where does that belief come from? 
And so the existential argument here for us on the positive is, is to explain the hope of the resurrection in salvation. It's to explain the impact of the resurrection on the individual believer and on you as the believer in that faith conversation. Um, there is no hope in their worldview. And at some point along the way, in existential arguments, you've got to ask questions to, to that effect. Well, I see the way you, you really sacrifice for your children. That's a great thing to do. And when I sacrifice for my children, I, I kind of understand I'm doing, I'm doing it for Christ. Christ calls me to do it, right? I, I don't understand why you do it. Well, you know, it's parents. It's the right thing to do. What do you mean by right thing? What makes it the right thing? I, I, I just want to understand how you, how you know. Because I see the way you do that, and it's great. I just see it disconnected from what you say you believe. Um, and the existential argument on the resurrection is really a critical part of these conversations when we come to sort of pushing people to consider the outcome of their way of living is if this resurrection is true, would you agree it changes everything? It did for me, right? And that's my personal experience, is that it changes everything. You can't make them believe. This is a sermon today. The Holy Spirit alone can reveal Christ to them. But you can, by the power of the Holy Spirit in you, help them to acknowledge that if that were believed, it would change everything. You you can't believe that and continue living and thinking the way you're living and thinking. Um, I do want to remind you, and I try to say this several times throughout, the proximate and existential arguments don't prove anything. Because every one of those arguments presupposes the truth of the Bible. That's the presuppositional part. Like When I talk about that, that's the part we can't lose sight of that even I... I, you, it, it's not about what order you put the arguments. It's about the acknowledgement with your own mind that those arguments presuppose that Scripture is true and Scripture is the ultimate authority. Um, real quick, um, uh, what is his name? Gary Habermas was the guy who first did it, but I have a quote from somebody else. Anyway, there's something called the... What? Mike Lacona? No, Greg. Uh, 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 no, not Greg. Uh, Phillips. Um, uh, anyway. <laughs> you know, yeah, Philip Phillips. <laughs> There's something called a minimal fact. And the idea is there's two requirements for a minimal fact. One is that it has to be confirmed by several strong, independent arguments. So typically 10 or more historical confirmations from various sources that say this thing happened. And that's how we establish it. And then second is that the vast majority of modern scholars look back at those sources and recognize them as true. This is what's used in historical scholarship. All, all historical scholarship, not non-Christian, is do we have sort of this minimal consensus of ancient um, testimonies 
And then do we have modern scholarship looking at the testimonies themselves and saying, yeah, those pass the smell test for these are not made up, these are not counterfeits after the fact, these are not, right? these are not obviously spurious. Um, so that's the concept of minimal fact. If we just apply that test to Christian history, the resurrection, Jesus died by crucifixion satisfies the minimal fact test so that he actually did die. Very soon after his death, his followers had real experiences that they thought were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. That satisfies the minimal fact test. Even Bart Ehrman agrees with that. Their lives were transformed as a result, even to the point of being willing to die for that resurrection message. That satisfies the minimal fact. All of this was taught very early, soon after the crucifixion. That satisfies. James, Jesus' unbelieving brother became a Christian due to his own experience with what he believed to be the risen Christ. And then Paul, who was a Christian persecutor, became a believer after a similar experience. So again, I'm not trying to prove anything. I'm just showing you that by the same standards we use to understand anything else that happened in history, we can understand a lot a lot of what the New Testament reports. And so this, this testimony of history is a really critical proximate argument that leads to the existential argument of that's been my experience as well. <laughs> when my eyes are open to the truth of this resurrection by the Spirit of God, it, it is transformative to a life. So much so that I'm willing to have this awkward conversation with you. Right? Like, wouldn't it be easier for us to talk about the things we already agree about? What, what like, uh, you're talking with somebody who has some credibility with you at this point, right? So, we like each other. The easiest thing for me to do to maintain that relationship would be to talk about things where we agree. What is it that compels me to talk about this really sticky subject that we don't agree? I must be persuaded that it's true. And that it's really, really important. That doesn't prove anything. It's just an existential argument of more, more weight to this. Questions about the resurrection and kind of how that fits into our overall faith conversations. I was thinking about the argument when you've been quoting about it was, you know, hallucinations or you know, when you have such a desire, you lose somebody. Sure. You have such a desire to see them and be with them again that your mind could play tricks on you. But when it's, you know, 500 people who did not have a personal experience, right. there wasn't somebody close to them, so they didn't have a desire. And, and to Megan's point, many of them were convinced they never would see him again. Right. Exactly. They're okay. certain about this. Yeah. So yeah. It's not like they had that emotional, that's yep. why he's arguing it. Really. None of us would argue against the possibility of an individual having a hallucination. Right. But that's not what we have to accept to right. accept this right. theory. Right. We have to accept mass hallucinations, the reports of which were then accepted by the contemporary world around them. Um, 
nobody writes the book on why the apostles were doing quaaludes, right? Like, you just don't see this of, oh, here's, yeah, those guys, they were nuts. Here's, but, and we laugh, but we, that's exactly what happens with modern cults, right? When we read the books or the, watch the documentaries on modern cults, they make sure to tell us about the massive drug use and the, the fact that these people were revealed as frauds and sex fiends. That's what they always come down to. It's always frauds and sex fiends doing drugs. That's what cults are, right? But history records that because their contemporaries record it. So again, that doesn't prove anything, but it really, all these arguments shift the burden of proof. And that's what's so critical in these faith conversations is the person you're talking to almost certainly thinks they have everything on their side and you're the one with this huge burden of proof. And what you're going to do is just kind of go through the categories of tell me what you think. Now tell me why you're sure about that. Now tell me how you know anything. Now tell me. (laughs) And it's just that asking questions of, Wow, I, I've actually never heard that before. Um, I have read eleven hundred Greek about the eleven hundred Greek manuscripts from the first five centuries that test. Right? Like, uh, have you heard about that? Have you? Uh, other questions? So, when having this conversation, what type of response should we expect from listener because I suspect it's not going to be you know I think you're right I believe I wish that was true yeah it's a it's a great question so early in the analysis when we get the um, either angry vicious sort of they go on the attack or the um, topic hopping they make a point you respond they move over here And after a couple of those, you say, hey, these are all really great questions and things to talk about. Could we pick one or two and talk about those today and in the future? And they won't even do that. Well, now you're in the pearls before swine. So you just figure out some gracious offer of future conversation as you abandon it and move on. When you get into the conversation, you need to, if they're in the conversation in good faith, you need to put yourself in their shoes and imagine how overwhelming it would be to have someone systematically dismantle your worldview. And so part of the graciousness is, hey, that's a lot to take in. Um, You want to talk about something else for a while? We'll pick this back up on another day. Or why don't you give that some thought and chew on it? I mean, I really put you on the spot here. Uh, I I can't believe how graciously you accepted the conversation. You want to give it some thought and, and we can start with some questions you have or some stuff that I said that didn't make sense at a future time. You really want to, you're always inviting more conversation because it, we have to be careful not to let ourselves off the hook where we feel good that we did our two and a half minutes of apologetics. They're actually craving more conversation and we're like, no, no, that's enough for today. <laughs> you know? uh, so you do have to let, no, no, I actually, I, I want to hear more about that. Okay. That's going to be extremely rare that somebody says it. But you can't take away their opportunity to say it. Um, So always offering more conversation, being incredibly gracious about how overwhelming the experience is, and then trying tactically to get that other conversation scheduled or to have some action items in between. And this can be really tricky to come up with action items in a way that doesn't sound like homework. 
But you do want to, of the stuff that was covered, you should recognize the most significant things, not that you said, that they said. That's what you're listening for. What's the significant stuff they said? And so how can you, at the end of the conversation, resurface that stuff for them to think about some more? Yeah, I mean, I, I, next time we're together, I, I know you, you, I put you on the spot. You didn't have time to give it any thought. I'd love to hear, I mean, you just, you try so hard to be a good person and do the right thing. And I really want to understand more about where that comes from. You see how, and I'm not great at this. Uh, they made us practice this a lot in school, believe it or not, um, of just figuring out what's that gracious question I can ask that opens up the next conversation and that gets them thinking in between. Um, and if you ever have the opportunity where you think the opening is there, um, a gospel of John where you say to them, hey, look, you know most of these stories. I'm not saying you're not familiar with this stuff, but I got to tell you this and by this, we mean God's word itself. I don't know the stuff I'm talking about because I'm smart. Or because I know it because of this changed my life. Maybe give it a read. Just read a couple chapters and we could talk about them if you want. Now, you've got to recognize that the person's there. But that's what you really want to be doing with this person. All of this stuff. I know we're spending weeks and weeks and weeks on how to have these conversations. All of this stuff is just because a lot of times this is what it takes and what God uses to get them to read the Bible with you. This is not going to persuade them. The Spirit of God working through the revelation of God in Scripture will persuade them. And so if you get to do that with them, amazing. You may not, but you may be sowing the seeds, paving the way for the person in their future who will. Or it may be the, the pastor who does. I mean, that's the most common way, is that what you're doing is softening their heart to show up in a church. 